If we can turn back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, in verses 28 to 36 of that chapter, we read of the transfiguration of Christ. In verse 35 we read, A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. So before us this evening, we have one of the outstanding events from the life of Christ. Outstanding, but I would suggest so little understood. We are often reminded that in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this world, the end, that is the cross, was ever in view. And just prior to this account of the transfiguration, Jesus had been speaking about his death, his resurrection and his return. In verse 22 we read, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So there's not only the coming death of the Lord Jesus Christ in view, but he also speaks and we are reminded of the fact of his resurrection. But more than that, we've got to keep in mind the fact that Jesus is coming again. Just reading verses 26 and 27 of this chapter. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And when Jesus speaks there about his return, he teaches his disciples of how he will come in glory. And here upon the Mount of Transfiguration, three of his chosen disciples are privileged to have a foretaste of that coming glory. That glory which will be witnessed by all men on that coming day of our Lord's return as we have it in Revelation. Behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him. So the importance of this event that we're looking at this, this evening, that the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus, it, it can be seen in, in one way by the fact it's recorded for us in three out of four gospel accounts. We have it here in Luke chapter 9. It's also there in Matthew chapter 17. And Mark speaks of it again in his ninth chapter. Therefore, we can see that this is a matter, this transfiguration of Jesus is a matter that is given prominence by God the Holy Spirit. As with everything that we read about concerning the life of the Lord Jesus, it is almost by definition an important event. And yet, one that I, in my experience at least, is little spoken about. I think I can only remember one, possibly two, sermons on the subject. 
well, why is there a lack of preaching on the transfiguration? And I suppose your experience may be different from mine. Well, I believe that the main reason is that although we read of these amazing events that took place upon the Mount of Transfiguration, as we do so, we, we instinctively can feel the, the magnificence, the awe, the wonder of this event. However, when we come to look in detail at this transfiguration, we, we cannot always be precise as to the meaning of the things that took place. There were men who put forward their views, and naturally this evening I'm going to put forward my views. But I trust what I say is based on the teaching of Scripture. With passages such as this, there can be the temptation to go beyond what Scripture teaches, indulge in just speculation. But I trust with God's help, I'll avoid that. So there are a several important lessons we can draw from this account of the transfiguration and yet I tell you in advance there are other areas where we're going to leave questions unanswered. The first thing we need to bear in mind is the timing of the transfiguration and the events that we are looking at here tonight took place in the final year of Christ's life on earth. The cross is drawing ever closer. We only need to examine the gospel accounts to be reminded of how much the Lord had accomplished thus far. But remember the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And so there is so much more for Jesus to do. The events of Calvary and the resurrection are drawing ever closer. There is less time for him to accomplish what must be done. One of the points that is immediately apparent from this passage is that there are only three disciples there with the Lord upon this mount, Peter, James and John. Perhaps we want to ask ourselves the question, why these three men? Was there anything particular about Peter, James and John which caused them to be chosen rather than the other nine disciples. Well, undoubtedly, we could say that these three chosen men, they were greatly used by God in the building up of the early church. Indeed, Peter and John were writers of scripture. But we mustn't allow that fact to let us put them on a pedestal. Many do that. But Peter, James and John were just men. God knew what these men were going to accomplish over the coming years. God knew how much these men would suffer in his name. And God as a sovereign, and God as the one who has promised to build his church, he provided these men with this special insight into the glory of his dearly beloved son. We could think about the mountain that Christ ascended in order to pray and we do not know which particular mountain it was. Men speculate. I believe if you were to go to the holy men, holy land, that men would offer to take you to the mountain. But we don't know. But there were many events that are recorded for us in scripture that took place upon mountains. And amongst other things, being on a mountaintop 
would frequently provide a relief from the crowds. It would give the Lord and his disciples an opportunity to be there alone with God. If we go back a couple of years to the temptation of Christ, which we remember was just prior to his beginning his public ministry, and there were 40 days and nights of sustained temptation, but we have three specific temptations recorded for us in Scripture. And one of these three specific temptations was that the devil took Jesus up on an exceeding high mountain, and from that lofty height, the devil showed the Lord all the kingdoms of this world and the glory of them, and he tempted the Lord. All these things will I give you if you bow down and worship me. Of course, in that temptation, had Jesus indeed bowed down to Satan, he would have been guilty of denying his father. He would not have been the true and faithful son that he really was. Now, as Jesus is approaching the end of his life on earth, again, we find him ascending a mountain. But there's all the difference in the world. Satan wanted to snatch the son's heart away from God the Father. But Jesus, the true son that he was, he wanted to be as close as he ever could to his father. And in that light, just remember the father's words of commendation as we have it in this passage. This, categorically, he, this is my beloved son. On the Mount of Temptation, Satan showed Jesus the passing glory of this world. Here upon the Mount of Transfiguration, these three disciples were shown something of the eternal glory of Jesus. Now, when we read of Jesus ascending a mountain to pray, please don't think that teacher, Scripture is teaching us that we need to ascend a mountain in order to pray. It's not as if those extra couple of thousand feet ascended will make any difference as to whether or not God can hear us. But there is that vital principle of cutting ourselves off from the here and now whenever we pray to God. And yes, I know we can pray to God from the middle of a busy meeting at work. We can pray to God from the middle of a busy supermarket or the streets of a busy city. But when we specifically settle down to pray to God, we need to remember what Jesus taught the disciples. Draw aside, shut yourself in the closet. When you pray, it's you and God alone. So make the effort, take whatever steps are necessary in order to draw apart from anything that might distract you. And you see this put into practice in the example of the Lord Jesus as he ascends the Mount of Transfiguration. Having just thought back to the temptation, I just want to go back slightly further. And there at his baptism, and as Jesus arose from the water, and as the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove, Again, there was that voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. 
in whom I am well pleased. And just notice the parallel. Here upon the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Matthew gives us the word in a somewhat fuller sense. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Around two years of public ministry have passed from the time at which the Lord spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism. But still, that bond between father and son remains unbroken. There's no change. It is still, this is my beloved son. I retired just a few months ago. But prior to my retirement, I'd been an accountant for 46 years. And often at work, we would have the situation where a father would commence a business. He would run it for a number of years. It may prosper. And as the father ages and as his son grows, he starts to introduce his son into the business. Inevitably, when this happened, there would be high hopes this is my son, as, as I start to, to fade into the background, he'll take over what I begun, he'll bring in new ideas, the two of us together will be able to have that, that synergy which will enable us to, to push the business forward. I, I could continue, I'm sure you understand the sort of thing I mean. And, and I'm not saying inevitably this happened, but it wasn't infrequent for what had started off in such hope to end in recriminations. Again, I won't go into details. I'm sure you could imagine the sort of things that happen between fathers and sons in business as the tension begins to take its toll. Well, it's a poor illustration. But Jesus came to this world to be about his father's business. And after two years' concerted labour, it's still this is my beloved son. As we move forward in, in this account, Luke tells us what began to take place as Jesus prayed. It's recorded for us in verse 29. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Literally, Luke tells us that the Lord's countenance became something other than what it had been before. The, the word used to explain the alteration in the Lord's appearance, it, it means different. But it's not different as in a slight change of appearance. You can use the word different in two different ways if that's not too many uses of the word different but you can say I painted the walls of the chapel and it looks slightly different that's a, a mild change or you could say we we knocked down the walls completely we put in new windows and new doors and put in partitions and, and ripped out the pews that's that's the sort of level of difference that Luke intends us to understand from the, his use of this word 
It's not difference as in a slight change, but it's changed into something of a completely different class or nature. That's how the image of the Lord changed in this passage. Not just slightly altered, but transformed, changed into something radically different. So perhaps we could say that in some way, in the events upon the Mount of Transfiguration, something of the veil of humanity which Christ added to his deity when he left heaven had been rolled back and the true glory of God shone forth. We read about Jesus humbling himself and making himself of no reputation when he left heaven to come to this world. And again in this passage you could say we see something of that veil partially lifted and the glory of Christ made manifest. And Undoubtedly, there were many times during the course of the Lord's public ministry, we could think of miracles of healing, the teaching, the very godly example of Christ's life, where in part that veil was partially removed. And here in this transfiguration, there's another aspect of this, something that showed an increasing revelation of the true deity of Christ as his godliness shone forth. I've not been counting, but I've used the word transfiguration a number of times by now. But you may have noticed that we don't read this word transfiguration in Luke's account of this event. But were you to turn to either Matthew or Mark, that's how they describe the event, uh, the transfiguration. They literally are speaking of a metamorphosis And the metamorphosis is a change from one form to another that is completely different. They're saying in different words the same thing that Luke says. I'm sure we will be aware that there are some men who try and rationalise these events, just like they do with much of the Bible. And, And why do they do this? They do so because their human minds can't really understand these things. Or perhaps they do so because they are so prejudiced in their unbelief that they do not want to understand these things. Such events as we read of here this evening, they're beyond our human experience. Natural science cannot explain away what happened. And so critics, as it were, they try and find a way of, in inverted commas, explaining it away. And so some suggest it was purely the the sun setting behind the Lord Jesus that caused this apparent change in his Lord's appearance. But that is absolutely not the case. This was no natural occurrence. It was the handiwork of God alone. And the Bible tells us how this change of Jesus into another form and it gives us an an insight in into the nature of Jesus God incarnate he who was both fully man and yet despite that self-imposed veil of a human body at the same time he was nothing other than fully God and not only was Jesus himself physically changed in these events But we're told that once that glory began to be revealed, it it couldn't be hidden. 
The change in his appearance began to spread even to his clothing again, Luke tells us. His robe became white and glistening. Mark goes further in his description and again he's emphasising that this is something that goes beyond the realms of, of normal human experience. Mark says his, his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So you can see already we've encountered questions that we cannot fully answer. Why just these three disciples? Why those three disciples? Where was this particular mountain? But now we must add to those questions as we move on. Because Luke tells us how Moses and Elijah spoke with the Lord. Men who we know had been dead for many years by now. And they were with their, the Lord there upon this mount of transfiguration. Uh, and in the context of this passage, remember how I mentioned at the beginning, Christ had been teaching about his coming death and resurrection. And surely the presence of Moses and Elijah with him there, that must have been a demonstration to these three disciples that God did indeed have the ability to raise from the dead. Many try to explain the choice of Moses and Elijah there with the Lord and they say, well, Moses was present as a representative of the law. Elijah was present as being foremost among the prophets. Again, I think I've mentioned the Sermon on the Mount a number of times today. But remember what Jesus said. Think not that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfil. And we could say that Moses and Elijah, as foremost as, as the God's instruments as giving the law, Elijah as foremost, perhaps amongst the prophets, they're there to, to testify to the truth that Christ had fulfilled the law and the prophets in their fullness that neither a jot nor a tittle had been left undone. But I think we can add to that one thought. Think of a, a, another occasion when Jesus taught his disciples. Elijah must come first. And here we have just that. Elijah coming first. Jesus also spoke about the manner in which men had so dreadfully treated John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. And in doing so, Jesus was pointing forward to the way in which men would so shamefully abuse him. There are more parallels we can draw. Think back to the lives of Moses and Elijah. They too were involved in remarkable experiences on the tops of mountains. Moses met with God. Moses was given the Ten Commandments and the law of God. We remember how the face of Moses shone purely as a result of his being in the presence of God. That shining of Moses' face was something of the reflected glory of God. And now here upon the Mount of Transfiguration, we can say Moses stood face to face 
with his God. He stood face to face in the presence of that glory, the Lord Jesus himself. Think about the time when Elijah was there upon Mount Carmel. And as it were, Elijah stood alone, but upheld by God. As Jesus went to the cross, it was Jesus Christ and him alone, but strengthened through the Godhead. Elijah, God's faithful prophet, was given the ability to stand firm in the face of the prophets of Baal. Those things that we read of which took place upon Carmel, they were pivotal in the history of Israel. Would the people return to follow the one true God of Israel or would they continue to worship idols? And as fire came down from heaven, as the faith of Elijah was vindicated, the glory of the one true God of Israel was clearly revealed. There are other parallels that we can draw between Jesus and Moses. Chapter 11 of Hebrews reminds us how Moses gave up so much that would have been his had he remained in Pharaoh's palace and yet he left it all behind by faith and he did so in order to be the leader of a despised people. God gave to Moses that people of Israel. Moses led his people out of bondage through the wilderness and to the borders of a promised land. Jesus came to this world. He left something far, far better than Pharaoh's palace. He left heaven to come to this world of sin. His father gave him a people and he went to the cross for them. And he has promised that if we are his, we will be with him in something far, far better than that promised land of Israel. We will be with him eternally in glory. Moses and Elijah, they were renowned as great men of faith. We read of that in Hebrews, that Jesus is the author and finisher of that faith. Moses and Elijah, they had remarkable ends to their lives. Moses was buried by God and Elijah was taken by God. So nobody can point you to the final resting place of either Moses or Elijah. And no one can take you to the burial site of Jesus. And yes, we read he was buried in a tomb, but he was resurrected. He rose from the tomb. The tomb is empty and now he's in heaven and he ever lives to make intercession. Coming down to verse 31, we read of Moses and Elijah and they now in a glorified form, they were speaking to Jesus of his decease, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, one of the points that really excited me, we all get excited by different things, but one of the things that really excited me when I studied this passage was when I discovered that the word translated decease in, his bi in the Bible, the decease that Jesus was going to accomplish at Jerusalem, the word decease is literally the word exodus in the original language. Yes, the same word as we have for the book of Exodus. 
The book of Exodus speaks of a going out. It speaks of the redemption of the Lord's people from bondage in Egypt. It speaks of the commencement of that journey to the promised land. So literally, Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about his own time of departure or the close of his life here upon earth. They were talking about Jesus going out of that time when he would leave this world. And doesn't that help us to understand the, the relevance of Moses' presence here upon the Mount of Transfiguration? And, and I'm sure there's a, there's a whole sermon in the thought about the parallels between the Exodus in Old Testament times and the work of Christ here on earth. I can only very briefly mention a couple. But there were the signs given by God through Moses. There was the rejection of Moses by the authorities. There was the Passover, the shedding of blood, the cloud that led them, the crossing of the Red Sea, which we read in Corinthians was a type of baptism, the daily provision of God in the wilderness, faith in God exercised and the faithfulness of God proved and the people led to a promised land, that picture of glory. All these things seen in a much fuller sense in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Only a little word, but Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about the exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Accomplish at Jerusalem. The very word used, accomplish, it doesn't speak of defeat, and many tell you that it was, that it was Satan's victory over Christ. It wasn't a defeat, but it was a glorious victory. So coming down to verse 32, we read of Moses and Elijah beginning to depart, and as they did so, Peter, recognising something of the grandeur of this place, something of the sacredness of this event, he wants to prolong it. Remember the disciples were afraid. Remember the disciples were in the presence of events that they really didn't understand. And Peter spoke. He didn't really understand what he was saying. But Peter, Peter being Peter, he, he just had to say something. We all have different dispositions. Some of us are slow to speak. Others are forward. Some are naturally inclined to action and leadership. Others tend to follow. Many times as you read through the gospel accounts, you see the forwardness of Peter. And many times it was good. Many times it was worthy of praise. And yet other times it would have been better had Peter remained silent. And this was one of those times. Peter suggests he should build three tabernacles. One for the Lord, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I suspect with our, our grounding in the Old Testament, when we hear this word tabernacle, our minds naturally go back to the tabernacle that was constructed in the wilderness, that place where men met with and worshipped God. One thing I can say for certain tonight 
is that it wasn't in Peter's mind that he should build three of that type of tabernacle here upon the Mount of Transfiguration. A tabernacle is literally a skin. It's a word used in scripture for a temporary building. And so under that heading, we could think of tents, we could think of shelters, we could think of booths like they constructed at the Feast of Tabernacles. I was interested when I researched this subject to discover that one of the most common usages of this word translated skin or translated tabernacle but which is really skin in the original one of the most common usages in Greek culture was as a background to a stage within a theatre and with that thought of a background to a stage in mind I feel it possible that this is what fits in with Peter's suggestion. Is it possible that was Peter was saying to the Lord, let me make three of that kind of stages, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and you can remain there, as it were, as a public spectacle, and men can come and gaze on the glory of God, and, and having done so, could they do anything other than believe? And yet while Peter was speaking, as Peter, as it were, was adding his ideas to God's plans, God spoke. And it's as if the Lord is saying, for whatever reason you want to prolong this event, Peter, but the work is done. As it were, put your hand on your mouth, listen to my beloved son. As I said at the outset, the time is short. There is much work remaining to be done what needed to be done in this place has been accomplished and so now it's time to move on. And you see that in the events which follow this account upon the Mount of Transfiguration. Almost as soon as Jesus had descended the mountain, you see him back to his work of healing, teaching, preaching. So much to do. Time so short. You see, there's a balance to be struck. It's good from time to time to remember back to what God has done, either in our own lives or into the lives of the churches. As it were, we raise our Ebenezers. Hitherto, the Lord has led me. We tend to raise up the monuments. This is the place and this is the time where the Lord met with me and blessed me. And this is good, it's right, it's proper. There are times when we need to stop and rejoice at the wonder of God's working with us in times past. But we mustn't stay there. There are times when we too must move on. For each of us, our lives are short and there are things that we must do. Again, we all have different dispositions. Some of us may be guilty of spending too much time in the past. And I would suggest that's a failing with many churches and congregations these days. That constant looking back to what they deem to be better times. They say, these were the days when we prospered. These were the times when we really knew the hand of the Lord upon us. Good, re remember these things. Praise the Lord for them. But don't stay there. Move on. 
because we're not living 100, 200, 300 years ago. We are living now, here, today, in the 21st century. And as such, it's our honour, our duty, to perform the work that God has given us. This is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. They saw no man but Jesus only. In the epistle to the Colossians, Paul writes, he must have the preeminence. That was one of the faults with Peter. You do not put the Lord Jesus Christ on equal standing with other men, even if it's great and greatly used men like Moses and Elijah. Jesus is preeminent. This is my beloved son. Moses and Elijah, greatly used men as they were, recede into the background. And Jesus is seen to stand alone. They saw no man but Jesus only. Remember what John the Baptist said. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. They saw no man but Jesus only. More things I could say, but because of the time, we'll, we'll leave it there.